Hey everyone, Anthony Fantano here, internet's busiest music nerd, and you are listening to another episode of The Needle Drop Podcast, our weekly interview podcast where we have conversations with content creators from across the internet. And in this episode, a bit of a uh, clash of worlds here. Uh, yes. we're, we're sort of diving into the world of anime, sort of dipping our toes a little bit uh, by inviting a fellow YouTuber on a self-described otaku gonzo journalist, gonzo journalist. Yes. Um, you'd think I would say that correctly since I am a Hunter S. Thompson fan, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I just sort of mispronounced it there. It's probably because I have sick brain right now, so I'm probably going to be slurring words. It's all but good. Whatever, man. So, and and his name is Digibro. That's 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 yep. that's that's what he's known as online, a Digibro. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's going to be sort of uh, educating a layman like myself to the world of anime in this yeah. episode. I'm just going to be asking some general questions, trying to get some recommendations, All and right. just understand this beloved world of animation just a little bit more. Yeah, I want to, uh, if I can, just preface this interview really quick, because I think mm. it's it's fascinating. I'm going to go out and uh, go ahead and say that I am probably the only guest on this podcast ever who is exponentially more familiar with your content than you are with mine. Hmm. I'm going to say I've seen 70% of all your videos. Uh, very big fan. Um, that's that's a lot of percent of my videos. Yeah. I've made like almost <laughs> 2,000 videos. So. I'm going to say I've seen 70% of them uh, in, on both channels. I've heard all the podcasts. I, uh, I've got your t-shirt and everything. Big nice. fan of the show. So, uh, yeah, nice. I, I kind of feel like I should be the one interviewing you. Um, and when you sent me a message, like, that you wanted to podcast with me, I was like, what in the world does he want to talk to me about? Does he want to talk about anime? Does he want to talk about Death Grips? I'll be disappointed if we go this whole podcast without talking about Death Grips. But we can show well, it. Well, given <laughs> that, the end. <laughs> g- given, given that um, and, and I was going to say this just before you threw that preface in there. As soon as we're done talking about this stuff, uh, we should talk a little bit of music, yes, you know, and uh, just, you know, get a, a taste of maybe what some of your favorite records have been for uh, the past year so far, or, you know, just things that you've been listening to that aren't exactly new, but you just keep Surely. coming back to that you like a lot. So uh, we should fit a music discussion in at the end here, for sure, uh, without a doubt. Um, okay, man. Uh, yeah, and, and, and while, yes, you have seen more of my content than I have of yours, uh, as far as, you know, the subject matter that you are uh, 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 basing your videos on, you know, you're, you're killing it, dude. You got, uh, you know, a Thank few you. hundred thousand subscribers. You have, uh, you know, some videos with tons of views where you're essentially, you know, giving these really in-depth opinions uh, on the current state of anime. Yes. Um, so I, I guess the most basic question uh, to sort of just kick this whole thing off is, uh, and before I get into that, I will say we are linking your YouTube channel down in the description so people can check that out. They can right. see that content. Um, but to sort of go over one of your most basic videos on your channel, what exactly is uh, anime? So anime is a Japanese colloquialism that's short for animation. That's how that video starts off. And uh, because it's my channel trailer, I've heard that sentence a few hundred times. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of a meme among my friends. But yeah, <laughs> it's just... Uh, you know, anime is a, a broad meaning, and a lot of people have different ways of using it. Uh, what I sort of posit in this video is that the only really meaningful way to use it is to describe just animation from Japan. Because if you try to say that anime is an art style, um, it 
dis it 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 discounts the fact that anime from Japan has so many different styles and it comes in so many different packages where there's there's a sort of uh idea that we have here in America of like what anime looks like because so much of what we've gotten like mainstream here is all the same because most of what we get is stuff from like Adult Swim and Cartoon Network, which is geared towards like action shows aimed at teenagers. Like it's always the same kind of shows that make it big in the West. Um, and those are the shows that have influence in the West. So now we have all these cartoons like uh, obviously Avatar The Last Airbender, stuff like Steven Universe that makes lots of anime callbacks. And people are saying like, well, that's anime style. And it's like, well, that's anime style insofar as what anime we get big here you know Mm -hmm. um so if you were to if you're trying to say that all japanese animation is anime then you're encompassing a huge range of styles and in japan anime just means cartoons so it really doesn't matter to them like to them american cartoons are anime it's all anime you know um but yeah so my my personally i think that anime should just mean it's from japan and it's animated because otherwise it's it's too convoluted to try to come up with other definitions Okay, so so the anime that we get over here from Japan uh, consistently um, sort of gears toward this more action-based style. Uh, yeah. You know, of course, there are some, I guess, uh, exceptions here and there, but they're not quite as popular as right. those shows that sort of seem to have huge followings over here, like Dragon Ball Z or Trigun yeah. or Cowboy Bebop. Um, and I so shouldn't even so just forth. say the West. Those shows are big all over the world, you know. If yeah, you go to absolutely. The, go to the Philippines, the same shows that's are big. Correct. But yeah, that's and correct. I mean, in fairness, those shows are the biggest in Japan, too. The stuff that's more art house, the stuff that's more, like, aimed at adults is also not huge there, which is why it doesn't come here and get big. But there's mm. so much anime that uh, I think we're really missing out on, like, the film circuit. Like, the people who are the, like, the art snob type people like there's a Hmm. lot of animation from japan that they're missing out on because it kind of gets grouped in with uh with just being anime and people's perception of anime is that if it's not by hayao miyazaki it's uh it's gonna be a naruto you know yeah okay well then then i guess my question based off of that is sort of outside of this uh bubble of these very popular shows that typically have uh, a similar style uh, how f- how how large are the variants beyond this that we're talking about? You know, I mean, I'm sure there are anime comedy shows, there are anime yeah. dramas. You a- know, anime uh, can be anything, anything you mm-hmm. can think of. There's a you know, there's an anime parallel to it. Like even if you were to say like French New Wave cinema, you know, there's there's anime that borrow from that. There's stuff for every genre, and and if you really you really have to go in deep on the on the medium to explore it. You know, I've seen a few thousand shows and I go out of my way to watch everything. And I think what's what's particularly interesting to me about anime is that uh, you know, there's that surface level that everybody knows and then when people get into it, they start finding the more experimental, the more artsy stuff and they get really into that. And then I think there's a sort of third depth that you get to when you're like me, which is where stuff that on the surface looks like it's going to be generic, you watch it anyways, because sometimes it's actually really interesting. Um, Because anime culture is very incestuous, like uh, the production is and stuff. So like anime largely takes influence from itself. And you'll find shows where on the surface, it looks just like some show about a bunch of like, you know, cute girls flapping their tits around. But then once you actually watch it, it has like these deep themes and shit that, like 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 it's actually borrowing from like much more 
heavy cinema and uh and and then just incorporating into a show with all these like typical anime influences so like once you get really deep into it there's so much layer so many layers to it that you can explore hmm. and and so you as a uh, uh you know, being the big anime fan that you are and you're sort of exploring this world, but you know, you're, you're in the U S you're on the East yeah. coast. You're not living in Japan. Uh, I mean, do you speak Japanese or take trips over there occasionally? I've, I've never been, uh, except for once in a layover <laughs> okay. for like an hour, so, but, um, so, so you're not spending this extraordinary amount of time in Japan or anything no, like that. No, sadly, so what, I, what I can't the... actually read Japanese. It's very, hmm. the funny thing about Japanese is that it's the e- easiest language in the world to learn how to like speak phonetically it has like mm. a perfectly phonetic alphabet no complicated characters very easy but they have this thing called kanji which is this infinite library of giant imposing symbols that are impossible to learn and so <laughs> trying to actually learn to read or write japanese is nigh impossible whereas learning how to speak and understand it is actually fairly easy if you watch enough anime then you'll at least be able to understand Japanese as it is in anime, which is a very like standard, you know, sort of like the way me and you speak English is the way that anime uh, Japanese is spoken in anime, as opposed mm-hmm. to the way like regular people would probably speak it. So you couldn't like go to Japan and be able to hold conversations based on your anime knowledge, but you could eventually be able to watch anime without subtitles if you just watched enough of it. Mm-hmm. Well, then, uh, sort of uh, going off of that, so what are the portals that you're using to sort of find out about? Uh, new anime, obscure anime, and sort of push yourself beyond uh, uh, the most easily accessible and the most popular stuff that people are typically exposed to? Well, one of the cool things about anime is that uh, just about everyone who's into it is an evangelist for it. The deeper they are, the more they they want everyone to know. know, (laughs) If there's a show only five people have seen, all five of them have written a review of it. So... Mm. um, and it's extremely well databased. So if you go to a website like myanimelist.com, which is just like a, you know, a place for you to list literally all the shows you've seen, give them ratings and stuff like that, they they have cataloged every anime ever. Um, mm. And Anime News Network has cataloged that, and they've usually cataloged all the people who worked on it. All the information about it that's out there is is documented. So. Uh, Yeah, it's pretty easy to find shows that way. And if you're like me, because I don't necessarily trust anyone else's opinion, I decided that I just had to form my own opinion about every single show. So I just watch everything, you know. Um, And every every season, every three months, a new season will start and about 45 new shows will come out. Hmm. Um, And I just watch the first episode of all of them. And most of them suck and I drop them immediately. And then I keep watching the ones that don't suck. but that's a that's a crazy method. The the easier way to do it is just watch my videos. I recommend all the good stuff. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So then, uh, th- so these lists and these websites are really great for uh, uh, archiving everything new that's out and sort yeah. of you know exploring through this stuff. But where are you actually going to add, like? watch this stuff from beginning to end are you streaming it online are you purchasing dvds it's it's gotten really exported to you it's changed a lot over the years you know i've been watching anime for 15 years now and like back in the you know in 2001 it was like you watched what was on cartoon network or adult swim and you know people used to like trade tapes back in the day that they had acid washed subtitles onto and like mailed them across the country and shit uh you know BitTorrent changed all that people started fan subbing shit um 
it was really like Naruto was kind of like a revolution in uh in subbing stuff fast where like fan subbers were like within the week of the show coming out were fan subbing it and putting it online and people were sharing it. So for a long time and still for a lot of people it's mostly torrenting. Like anime is still gets around through torrenting a lot, but now like most stuff get streamed it'll either be on crunchyroll which is uh a site that if you if you use the link crunchyroll.com slash digibro you'll make me five dollars signing up for an account there um (laughs) but uh crunchyroll has like they'll they'll sub stuff like the the hour it comes out like it broadcasts in japan an hour later there's an english subtitle on their website and you can watch it streamed um there's also Funimation, who's an English licensing company. They've been doing, like, anything that Crunchyroll doesn't get, Funimation gets. It's pretty rare for there to be shows that just aren't streamed at all. Most of them are, like, kids' shows. Don't really get picked up much here. Um, and even then, like, uh, now we've got, like, Netflix doing it, too, where Netflix picked up, like, Knights of Sidonia and now a show called Ajin, which wasn't getting streamed anywhere. And then Netflix was like, hey, we're going to – it's now a Netflix original series. So – yeah, and Hulu is also big um, for that. So, like, yeah, almost everything that's worth watching is getting streamed nowadays. It's pretty easy to come by. Uh, if you really want an in-depth guide, I do have a video called Guide to Getting into Current Anime, uh, mm-hmm. which is, like, a probably two years old and shittily made, but it, it has all the information, so... <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, we will... Uh, let me see. I'm writing that down now into Current Anime... Yeah. And we will uh, link that down there in the description box too. So, I uh, okay. So, so these are portals where people could be finding out about this stuff, could be watching this stuff, yeah. um, and on these websites they could be seeing opinions and uh, finding out what's good, what's not. Right. Um, to to sort of give people, I guess, uh, um, uh, sort of a, a bare bones taste of of what they might get sort of entering into this world and trying to acquire a taste for this style of animation um, and just animation from Japan in general. Uh, In your opinion, what are a couple of the classics that you feel like people should, you know, dip their toes into um, maybe before going into the deeper, more art house stuff as you kind of described it? I think, uh, I think it really depends on, you know, what your taste is and what you're looking to anime for. I think the reason that a lot of those, uh, like a lot of the shows that are really, really popular are, you know, those action shows that are more teenager focused. But the reason people like them is that they're very long and they, they tell these grand epic narratives. And for a lot of people, that's what's spe- special about anime is that it can tell a long form story that's a continuous narrative and without doing the like HBO thing of like every episode has to be an hour and aim on end on a cliffhanger. So they're all kind of structured the same way. Like with anime, it's just, here's a long fucking story, you know, and watch the whole thing. Um, so if you like that, those aspects of it, you know, watch a show like Hunter, Hunter, uh, Hunter X Hunter is how it's written, which is like 148 episodes and very solid all the way through or, uh, the sports (laughs) anime. So many episodes. Yeah, it's a lot. But like I said, that's what a lot of people come for. Not so much for me. Like it's a struggle for me to watch a long show. Like Hmm. I, if it's more than 26 episodes, I really have to like give pause to the idea of watching it. Cause you know, I, I like to always be moving on to the next thing and I make videos and stuff. So I always want to get more content out. It's kind of like when you have to review 
review your videos out in a timely manner. Right. When you have to review something like the Epic and you're just like, it's three fucking hours long, you know? And yeah. It's, <laughs> it, it, it gives you pause. So yeah, like with something like Hunter Hunter, it was like, I had to, I waited till it was all the way over. Cause I don't, I don't do the whole, like most anime fans, they like to watch week by week. I'm not into that. Uh, I'm not into that for any kind of show. I'll wait for it to be over and I'll just watch the whole fucking thing all at once. Um, so, like, with Hunter x Hunter, I did that, and another good long one is uh, Hajime no Ippo, which is a boxing anime, very great sports narrative, just about this kid, you know, who starts off in high school, learns how to box, and you follow his whole career all the way through. Um, so those are good for, like, if you want that long-form narrative. But if you want something that's a little more short and sweet and to the point, um, Cowboy Bebop is always a good entry point for adults. I think uh, with anime, a lot of it is... It's it's definitely largely aimed at, like, young adults and teenagers. And if you're above, like, a certain age, a lot of it might be cloying or just too much. Uh, Cowboy <coughs> Bebop is a lot more laid back. It pulls from a broad range of, like, film history type feel. And if you like a show like that, the best way to moving forward is to just watch everything by the guy who made it, you know? Hmm. Um, sort of also, like people do with soundtracks film. soundtracks are amazing. Gotta say the soundtracks oh, yeah. are amazing. The Yoko Kano soundtracks are incredible. Um, I, I, I've always, I've been meaning to ask you because you, there's a famous picture of you where you have an Akira poster in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always wanted, I've always been like, I wonder if he, if he has the soundtrack somewhere for Akira. I, I have a digital. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty great one. Um, but yeah, Cowboy Bebop is a great place to start. And then if you look into the guy who directed that, you could go to Samurai Champloo, which he also made, which is a, a bit more fun and like... Then you could go from there to Space Dandy, which is way more fun. That's a recent one that just came out like uh, two years ago. Actually, was dubbed into English along with the release of the series. Like it was released in Japan and the U.S. at the same time, which has never been done before. Yeah. Um, and it's it's like it's the guy who did Cowboy Bebop teaming up with like newer, younger people. Like he brought his whole old crew and all these new, fresh faces unbelievably beautiful animation uh probably the best looking tv show ever like in terms of animation and uh just a fun wacky time with like all these individual uh stories and then if you wanted more of that like experimental fun feel look into who the episode directors are and like all of them have done other stuff and they've all done interesting things because everyone he collaborates with is is like that um i have a, a video actually called uh the tracing the lineage of Cowboy Bebop, where I just like broke down everyone who worked on it and everything else they had worked on, and like all of it's interesting. So if you hmm. follow the career of someone who's really interesting, you're gonna find great stuff. Uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion is like the premier classic anime. That's like the one that when most people think like what is the greatest anime of all time, Eva comes to mind. Partly because it's uh, whereas Cowboy Bebop is like good for people who aren't into anime, Eva is a great way to like. It, it totally is anime. Like, it's everything you'd expect from an anime. It's about teenagers. It's about, like, angst and melodrama. But it's, like, this tightly constructed, incredibly well-directed show. And the director, Hideaki Anno, everything he's done is great. So look into him. Um, if you want a great romance series, he directed a show called His and Her Circumstances, which is, in my opinion, the best romance in anime. Um, so, yeah, like... Look into the, the the great, like, if you watch one of the greats, look into who made it, and they typically have done a lot of interesting stuff. Um, it, and, oh, and one that I think, if there's one anime director who deserves to have been, like, like a mainstream household name and somehow never got to be, it's Satoshi Kon. 
Um, he was the director of uh, Paprika and uh, Tokyo Godfather's Paranoia Agent, uh, Perfect Blue, and Millennium Actress. All of his films are absolute masterpieces. He's he he's he unfortunately died a few like almost ten years ago at like age forty five, but he was probably the greatest director of his time and like he deserves to be mentioned alongside any of the great like you know the Wes Andersons and Quentin Tarantinos and stuff like the the current generation of great directors he should be in there and it's really sad and disappointing that he doesn't get talked about more um every frame of painting has a great video about his work though so check that out um okay sort of going off of him and he's and he's produced anime films you said correct yeah, primarily. Um, you know, and also, uh, you brought up the, the fact that I have that Ab, uh, Akira poster yeah. earlier, which uh, I'm, I'm looking at right now. It's on my wall right in front of me. Um, uh, what are some classic recommendations, titles that you would suggest, just more on the film side? Because I, I, I'm sure that that might be easier for people to dive into who, yeah. you know, still for maybe like a 26-episode series, that might be a little daunting. Right. Um, especially if they're not you know, familiar with, like you said, some of the melodramatic and uh, yeah. um, uh, uh, angsty sort of angles, some of the emotions taken in these, in these pictures in these series. Yeah, I'd say uh, anime films, there's the, the classics that sort of got anime to like permeate into the West in the first place would be like Akira, Ghost in the Shell, Ninja Scroll, if you want something that's just like a badass action movie. Um uh, and more stuff from the 90s that wasn't as well known, Jinro the Wolf Brigade, which is from a lot of the same team as Ghost in the Shell and is equally like a a dark, you know, uh, dreary, slow paced movie. Someone called it the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy of anime once. Um, oh, man, more from the 90s trying to think anything Studio Ghibli has ever done, which I think I think a lot of people are aware of Studio Ghibli for Spirited Away and uh you know, Princess Mononoke and stuff, but, like, almost everything they've done is great. You should look into all their movies. Uh, my personal favorite is Ponyo. A lot of people don't like Ponyo because it's a kid's movie, but I think it's fantastic. Um, the Wind Rises was Hayao Miyazaki's last masterpiece until he decided that he's gonna make anime again, because he always does. Uh, oh, man. Yeah, just any of their films. Um, only yesterday just got a re-released in the U.S. or finally released in the U.S. and I think it's still in theaters. Um, the Boy and the Beast is in theaters right now. I've heard that one's not as good, but it's from director Mamoru Hosoda, who's sort of like the newest big name in anime. He did Summer Wars and Wolf Children. If you want like more contemporary films, I would suggest uh, his movies, Wolf Children and The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. Those are the kind of movies you could like watch with your family and they would mm. completely get it. You know, like there's nothing, whereas movies like Ghost in the Shell and Akira are more like sci-fi and genre films. So like, you know, while film buffs appreciate it, I don't know that the casual audience necessarily would. Um, I think anyone could watch Wolf Children and it would immediately make sense to them. It's just like a movie about motherhood and a woman, Raising two kids who happen to be part wolf, and they can transform freely between human and wolf. But it's a very cute, normal-feeling movie. Uh, and The Girl Who Leapt Through Time is similar. Summer Wars is a little more nerdy, but I fucking love that movie. Uh, so yeah, those are probably some of the best like entry point films. Those are the ones because this is a question that comes up a lot. Like every every anime fan has to have their uh, list of how I would get people into anime. And uh, yes, yeah, um, you have to have your anime elevator pitch ready. Yeah, 
I, I would say, but for me, it's, it's always a matter of taste because I take recommendations really seriously. So like, cause I, I think, I think it's presumptuous to think that everyone's going to be able to, like, everyone says Cowboy Bebop, but it's like, what if you don't even like sci-fi that it's completely out the window? Yeah, know? absolutely. Um, a bunch of bounty hunters traveling through space. Yeah. Just, you're not going to be into it. So you really got to know like what the, I, I think, I think again, like those films I just named are all great. Like anyone can watch this and appreciate it. I don't think it's necessarily going to get you into anime though. Cause like getting into anime means you will eventually have to buy into this whole culture, you know? Like, you can be a guy who's seen 25 anime films and thinks they're all great and be like, I appreciate Japanese animation, but I think if you're on the level where you're, like, going around saying, I'm an anime fan, you're you're probably in a little deeper, you know? <laughs> like, you're probably uh, no longer fit for this world, so to speak. <laughs> I'm looking around, my, my walls are 100... I have a giant room, and every wall is 100% covered in anime posters, and I'm just looking around at all of them, like thinking about what I'm saying and like and who I am and it's it's pretty funny. Well I you know, I'm glad that the irony is not lost on you or that you're self aware yeah. enough to, to just be like, hey, this is this is what I do. Yeah, no, I, I, I that's a big part of otaku culture, which otaku is like the the people who are freakishly into anime. Um which I'll I'll talk about that term a little. It's a sort of contested term because in Japan it was originally meant as like an insult. It was like people called anime fans otaku as a way of like calling them creepy. It's kind of like mm. how nerd used to actually mean insult in a in our culture. Yeah. And uh there was this the the people at Gainax, which is a, the studio that produced uh, Evangelion and a bunch of other classic anime. They like they decided that they were going to own otaku and it, they were going to like make it theirs. So they made this movie called Otaku no Video, where it's, like, about how, like, they were basically, the whole movie is, like, saying, who cares if we're otaku? We can do what we want. We're proud of ourselves for who we are. And it's a great movie. So, yeah, um, this this insult, it extends not only to the fans, but also the creators of, of this animation as well? Uh, or, well, you know, in the are case there, are of... Are there any instances where, like... You know, the animators are kind of, like, embarrassed of their fan base. I definitely think there's some who are embarrassed. And I think that's what's interesting about uh, the director of Evangelion. Because with that, with Otaku no Video, those guys, the reason it extended to them is that they were the otaku studio. Like, they were the first... Most animation studios, like, broke off from other studios from the past. So, like, you know, you had stuff that... Studios that sprang up in the 60s and everyone who worked for them, like, would eventually break off and make their own studios. Gainax was a studio that was just a bunch of anime fans who met in college and started making shows together in the 80s. And, like got really popular doing that so they had this like different mentality of like we are the ascended fanboys kind of thing and Hideaki Anno who was the lead uh director who who did Ava he is like the biggest otaku of all time he's the biggest anime fan but he's also like the most ashamed of otaku and the most critical of the culture and uh you know he 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 kind of equates it with autism which on some level it kind of is but he's gone so far as to say that he thinks all creatives are autistic on some level uh i could go on about him all day he's fascinating and i have uh watch my videos who is hideki Anno? great um one of my favorite things i've written because he's a great character but um but yeah they sort of took this term and owned it and then it's funny because like in the 90s, it was still an insult in Japan, like, because there was a, a serial murderer who they called, like, the otaku killer. So, like, anime fandom became associated with that for a long time. But then, so, so what about this killer made him otaku? Like, he just happened he to be... Stuff? Yeah, he just happened to be, like, an anime fan, and he killed a bunch of Was there of something about anime that was, like, kind of his calling card or something? I, I don't think so. It was just, like, hmm. a... 
I don't even know if it was that he was, like, a serial killer or just, like, he killed a lot of people at once. Like, I think he might have done, like, a mass shooting or something like that. But they, they called him the otaku killer. And just like how, you know, video games are, are misunderstood in the West, anime is just as yeah. uh, fandom. Like is how just people would look at Marilyn there. Manson and think that Marilyn right, Manson exactly. fans are potential killers or something. I'm trying to think of that line from the Eminem song with, uh, where he name drops Manson. Um, oh. And, ah, Fuck. I can't remember the song right now. <laughs> One of my favorites from him, Way I Am by Eminem. Um, anyway, yes. <laughs> yeah, they had this otaku killer. And so for a long time, like, you know, otaku was really an insult in Japan. And then in the West, we sort of co-opted it because of Otaku No Video. We named the convention Otakon after that movie. And uh, so here it became like a, a pride thing. Like if, oh, I'm an otaku, I'm a big anime fan. And then it sort of became like a, a contested thing where like now people are saying, oh, we're like appropriating Japanese culture and stuff because they don't actually view this as a as a good term. But it's funny because it it was always a punk thing, right? Like otaku no video, the whole point of it was to have this like punk attitude and say, no, fuck it, we're taking the term back. So as far as I'm concerned, we should definitely be calling ourselves otaku, not because we think it's accepted, but because we're saying fuck you to people who don't accept it, you know? I totally think it's like a countercultural type thing and that it, you know, that it has meaning for that reason. Um mm-hmm. So yeah, that's why I'm the otaku gonzo journalist, because I, I really stress the fact that like I am completely embracing that I am deep, deep, deep into this anime shit, and I'm not apologizing for it, uh, which I think a lot of people are. A lot of people who want anime to be respected as a medium, they want it to be because of the big... They want it to be the Miyazakis. They're like, oh, how can you insult animation when, when uh, you know, these, these amazing Ghibli movies are coming out? And I'm like, how can you insult animation when this dumbass 12-episode late-night TV show about girls with big titties actually has a really interesting theme behind it, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, well, then, sort of with this invention of this once-insulting term and then it sort of being embraced in kind of a way... Um, so, so where does another insulting term like weeaboo kind of come in? So weeaboo was, uh, invented, I believe by 4chan. Um, they just sort of, it, it was meant to describe like people who, who are like Westerners who are way too into like Japanese culture and stuff. Like, you know, the classic image of the weeaboo is like the, 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 the white fat guy in a kimono with a katana talking about how he's, you know. Uh, someone's senpai or something like that's the weeaboo stereotype um i think it's mostly I'm just trying a, not to laugh as you describe that yeah Sorry. i'm sure you've seen those pictures before i don't know i'm a i'm a long time channer so and i figure you are at least on sub level I, I am as well so i've seen yeah. too many of those pictures you too. are a, you are a, you are definitely a meme on the 4chan uh, whenever i close my eyes i just see those images forever. Yeah. <laughs> uh but yeah it's that's like the classic stereotype. I don't think it's ever been a term that is used like outside of anime fandom, though. So it really is something we we own. Like, I, I mean, like you got guys like Filthy Frank making fun of it, but like he clearly knows like his shit. Like he's actually a half Japanese guy who knows what he's talking about. And like, I don't think Weeaboo has ever really escaped being something that mostly anime fans use to make fun of each other. Um, mm. And I I love it. I embrace it. I I have a podcast called The Weebcast, you know, like again, I, I I make no apologies about like how weird and stupid being an anime fan is, but uh you know, I think there's a lot of interest uh, a lot of interesting things going on in the media, but I'm uh happy to explore it. 
Um, all right. So, so going back to some of the stuff you were saying earlier, you know, it just seems like with all these different anime series and films that you're talking about, just so many different genres and emotions are covered. Things from yeah. lighthearted children's films to action stuff to sci-fi stuff. Um, uh, so give me an idea of sort of what the inception point for a lot of this Japanese animation that we're seeing today comes from. You know, you were talking about... Um, some of these animation studios in the 60s yeah. um, sort of being a breeding ground and then birthing these other animation studios in the 80s who sort of continued off of that. Um, you know, these large-scale animation studios from the 60s or small-scale, um, is is that basically where a lot of this starts? Does it go earlier than that? Is yeah, there I'd a say, figure or two who kind of function as like this Walt Disney yeah, for there, Japanese there animation is. or something? Uh, that would be Osamu Tezuka. Um, he was a guy... Basically, after World War II, Osamu Tezuka started making uh, comics, and you know, which were called manga. And uh, he was very influenced by Disney and by uh, like Western comics in general. But he would he made like this dude Osamu Tezuka made like over a thousand comics. Like some of them would go on for a long time. Some of them would be like just one chapter or one volume. But he made like well over a thousand. Um, you know, started so like up, around this time that he's making these comics. We're also getting like Superman over in the U.S., right? Probably this would be that, like the fifties, like late fifties, early sixties would be around yeah. when this is happening. I'm, I'm, um, just to continue doing what you're doing, I need to look up uh, exactly when like the first Superman comics came out, right. just because I'm curious. I thought they were a bit older than that, but I could be wrong. Um, I think they were. They might have been. I don't know my Western comics as well, but uh. Yeah, um, so Tezuka... Uh, looks like in 1938 it was like when the first one was uh, right. printed, it looks. So Tezuka started making... A, he wanted to adapt his comics into animation, but like the way that animation was mostly done like in the West, this is a time when we had like Tom and Jerry and like... Uh, you know, Bugs Bunny cartoons and stuff, and all those are pretty well animated. Like, back then animation was usually like short films that were really well done like it was really expressive animation it wasn't until like the 80s that like american animation got really cheap and became like toy shilling stuff or maybe the late 70s but in any case uh yeah you're talking about like cutting frame rates yeah and, when you got stuff um, you know, like, like gi joe and it's like well gi yeah. joe is better looking than a lot of them transformers is like the worst when it comes to like shit animation yeah uh, that and like uh thundercats like the animation yeah. wasn't that good there he-man and a lot of that is blamed on like japan because what they did what what tezuka did when he like wanted to get his cartoons out there is like they didn't have the budget for it so they thought all right what can we do to make this affordable and they were like well we'll only have four frames a second um we'll we'll have a minute and a half long intro song and a minute and a half long outro song that way we can take up a huge amount of the time slot you know we'll reuse a lot of footage if we can so like all these cost cutting techniques were developed by Tezuka and his company to make these really cheap cartoons that were just adaptations of his comics but they were you know they had heart and they were good and people liked them and they made it around the world and uh you know sure and th and these techniques kind of went on to influence the big budget stuff who yeah. obviously, you know, they could afford, they could afford to have more frames a second. They could afford to not have the minute long intro right. song, but these things sort of became stylistic characteristics. Right. Um, and then I'd say from there, you know, 
again, anime is very incestuous. So, like, it was a lot of people just kept learning from what the guy they were working under was doing and then building on it and making some changes, you know? So, like, you get a lot of directors from the the 80s and 70s were, like, understudies of the first guys, and then they went off and did their own thing. Like, if you get um, Isao Takahata, who founded uh, Ghibli, like, you know, he worked... I believe for Tezuka Pro or maybe for one of the early companies. And, you know, he like rose up, became a director. And then him and Hayao Miyazaki went and formed uh, Studio Ghibli. And then Miyazaki rose up and became a director, you know, and each one of them, like you can see where they learned from the guy who was the previous big director there. Um, Hmm. Unfortunately, Miyazaki, who is an insane person, never really passed on his talents in a big way because he is such a like, megalomaniacal crazy man um if you've never looked into Hayao Miyazaki I highly recommend reading up on him he's well known for lots of controversial quotes about how he hates the state of modern anime and a lot of people will like quote him to say like anime is going downhill but he's been saying it since the 80s like he's always hated anime (laughs) um he because he wanted it to be like the high-budget, high-effort, lots-of-animation stuff, which is why Ghibli movies are like that. They're so much more animated than all other anime because that's what he wanted it to be, and he hates... He hated that Tezuka popularized cutting corners and, like, reducing the artistic quality, I guess, in his eyes. Um, Read some stories about him. Fun guy. He once sent a uh, samurai sword to Disney with with a letter on it that said, No Cuts when they got the rights to Princess Mononoke. <laughs> Great guy. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so I think a lot of these studios evolved from each other, and then like just whatever big pop cultural movement was happening at the time would, would influence it a lot. In the 80s, like Star Wars and Mad Max were like huge influences on anime. Like, hmm. uh, you know, because one of the first anime to like, get big with adults was Gundam, and mm. Gundam, like, has huge influence from Star Wars and also from, you know, other, like, war films and stuff. And it became, like, this – it sort of aged up anime's demographic because up until then it was mostly, like, kids and family entertainment. And then after Gundam it became, like, oh, this is something that nerds can get into, you know. And then we got, like, the 80s was all these nerdy genre movies, all these sci-fi, all these uh, uh, post-apocalyptic things, which is why a lot of older anime fans, like, really – are like really stuck in the eighties and nineties because they are, they were into it for the sci-fi, you know, they were into Mm. it for the genre aspect. The, it was usually like really violent, lots of manly characters. And, you know, it's like, if you, if you like that time when the men were giant and the women were pretty and uh, there were titties and there was blood, then like the eighties and early nineties are for you. Um, Especially if you like sci-fi. And then like in the course of the nineties, like, uh, really the late 80s, early 90s, like, cute girl shows became more of a thing. And now it was, like, more of this, uh, this wish fulfillment of having cute girls around. And so in the early 2000s, there was, like, this period where that kind of, like, shows that were just about having cute girls started becoming a big thing. And that's sort of when there became, like, this big divide in anime fandom of people who really hate new anime because they see it as all just cute girl bullshit, and uh, and then people who are into it for the cute girls, which is, like, you know, the more new generation who uh, don't necessarily have any interest in the older stuff. So that's why I keep saying that, like, it's so important to know what kind of taste you have and also how old you are and, like, what your life situation is, you know? I think a lot of the cute girls shows kind of fall apart if you're, like, 30 and have a girlfriend and you don't want to watch a bunch of... or, or a 
wife. You don't want to watch a bunch of shows about like 15 year olds and their dating problems, you know. Mm-hmm. But, well, what exactly caused this this cultural shift where all of a sudden you have this proliferation of all of these cute girl shows and sort of this uh, th- this fall in relevancy of these action uh, and these I, sci-fi oriented shows? I honestly think it's just a matter of where culture was going. I think sci-fi mm. was I think sci-fi in general was most impressive in like the 80s when we were getting close to the new millennium and everyone sure. wanted to know what the future would look like. And we thought we would have flying cars in 20 right. years. And I think and everyone would own a laser. I think computers completely demystified the future like computers made it so we all knew exactly where we're going you know um i mean if you look at those like singularity spreadsheets where it's always like you know the singularity will happen in 2044 and here's exactly what technology we'll have each year you know uh really pulls the the veil off of that which i i think that we are in my opinion we're getting still like the best sci-fi ever when it does happen because it's more informed and more relevant and we get stuff like uh you know where ghost in the shell in like 1995 that movie was so hugely predictive of like what technology could become and it was such a big deal and it you know the matrix was directly inspired from it and we got all these uh, great sci-fi films from that but if you watch ghost in the shell the tv series um, from 2003, Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex, which is two 26-episode seasons. It is fucking phenomenal. It is by far the best sci-fi thing, I think, that's ever been written because it it basically fully creates, like, what, like, Japan will look like in 40 years uh, or however long it's supposed to take place in the future. But, like, it does not skimp on any detail. It, like, it feels like a fully realized vision of what, our world is going to be like everything you could imagine being the case is in there and it all makes sense together. I mean, some of it's not going to age perfectly just because it's, you know, it's from 2003. They didn't necessarily know what smartphones were going to look like. I think, I think there's actually still like one giant cell phone in the show, but, uh, Hmm. (laughs) but you know, it's moving in that direction where it's like, holy shit, this might actually be what 30 years from now looks like. At least you hope so until, you know, whatever happens and we all get demystified again. <laughs> okay, so so this, uh, I guess, stylistic shift or emphasis on certain styles of anime, these trends that you're talking about, you know, like with the cute girls, not yeah. to just sort of continue harping on the cute girls, but, you know, it's just I mean, another it's, question I have. It's worth harping on because it is what has become, like, a lot of anime. And I think it's hmm. just, again, it's a matter of, like... Uh, it's just what the it, it's a very gradual change like if you look at anime history you look at the early 90s you see where um there, there was a period recently actually because i was born in 1991 and i uh like last year decided to just watch everything that came out in 1991 um mm. and what shocked me was that it was a lot of sci-fi shows and a lot of fantasy shows but all of the main characters were women like, mm. it was just a period where, like, strong female characters was the flavor of the month at the time, or flavor of the year, rather. So, like, almost every single anime I watched from 1991 had, like, strong female characters in a sci-fi setting. And then over time, you watch the sci-fi sort of bleeds away. You get more and more shows that are taking place in, like, contemporary settings, more in high school. Um, if you look at the late 90s and early 2000s, lots of, like, weird experimental stuff was happening at the time because computers were coming out, animation styles were changing, Evangelion made it okay to experiment with anime, um, which... I don't think enough people completely appreciate that Ava, like, really changed everything. Like, before that, there was not a lot of original TV anime. Like, most original ideas were movies and, uh, and like, straight-to-video releases. Ava kind of made it so you could do anything and put it on TV. 
Um, so like the late nineties was a lot of that. And then you get into the early two thousands and you get more and more of these cute girl shows. And those are just where the money was. So anime just gravitated towards it. Cause there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of money in anime. So if they think they can make money off of something, they will go all in on it. And, okay, uh, so so that money though, yeah, is it coming primarily from Japanese audiences, or yes. is there a huge Western pull from this? Do these anime studios honestly anime usually studios, usually produce anything with like Western audiences in mind, or is that just kind of like this extra world of people who just happen to be following and watching, and if they yeah. like it, they like it; if they don't, it doesn't matter. Anime studios, for the most part, do not give a fuck about outside of Japan, <laughs> like at all. It's a completely unreliable market, and. I think there was a period, I think there was a period briefly around when Adult Swim started where the West seemed to matter, where, um, you know, we were buying lots of DVDs because that was the, like, the DVD boom era, right? Because anime makes most of its money through purchase. It doesn't really make anything through, like, advertising and stuff because the audience for it is so small. It mostly makes its money because that small, dedicated audience spends money on it. And Mm. in Japan, DVDs and Blu-rays are insanely expensive. And the reason being that, like, they used to, you know how, like, Blockbuster would, like, buy a DVD for, like, $70 and then they'd rent it out to you for five bucks? Like, that pricing is how it still is in Japan. Like, they, Mm. they pay $70 for a DVD. Um, whereas here, I mean, like things haven't taken over streaming wise over there yet. Like it has over here, like these people aren't sort of streaming these shows on a platform or I don't think it's taken off enough yet. There's, there's been some companies who have experimented with it. I think it's a problem of, um, the, the medium, the, the whole market I think is so like stuck in its ways that it's having a very hard time evolving to match the internet. And Japanese companies don't really know what to do. And also, like, copyright over there is much stricter of a thing, like, um, which is why guys like me have to deal with lots of video takedowns. Uh, won't get too into that, because I just listened to your H3H3 and Frank C podcast, and you talked about a lot of it anyways. But, um, hmm. yeah, like, copyright's very strict. They don't like stuff getting onto the internet. They don't like it being out there. They want to have control over it. And they seem to not... The same way with, you know, with Western um, movie studios. They just don't seem to understand that they have to evolve or else they'll die, you know? Yeah. And I think that's the biggest problem facing anime studios is that they are still so reliant on Blu-ray sales and DVD sales and merch sales uh, that they're not evolving quick enough to catch up with the internet. And the the ones that are evolving, a lot of them are moving towards, like, making shorter shows. Like, there's been a huge boom in five-minute short animes that are, like, Hmm. you know, 12 episodes, five minutes a week, little comedy shows that, like, get made a lot, and they're just released on the internet. Um, So I think that anime is going to move in a direction where uh, shows get either shorter or more specific or they just I don't, I don't think they can afford to keep doing things the way they've been doing it you know and they're gonna have to start figuring out how to monetize monetize the worldwide appeal because there's people um all over the world who like anime and most of them can't watch it legally like even the stuff that's on Crunchyroll is usually region locked so like if you go on there to try to watch shit and you're in the u.s or the uk you might be in luck and if you're in Bolivia or something, you're, you're shit out of luck, you know? Um, so you're going to have to go find an illegal stream or go download it somewhere. And, uh, yeah, it's well, it's sort of interesting to think of just how much larger the market could become if right. they were just quicker about 
subtitling it and then just making it more accessible. But it's also like, it's hard to do though, because so much anime is geared just to anime fans, you know, existing fans. They're all trying to milk the the audience that's guaranteed that they know will give them money. You know, Uh, if you watch my video, why good anime is hard to make is by far my, my most popular one. Some of the facts in there are not accurate. Just warning you up front, like, uh, everything I say about Studio Ghibli closing down was completely incorrect. But, uh, there's, the overall sentiment is just basically that anime producers want the guaranteed audience. They want the people who they know will spend money on it, because trying to make something risky is a huge risk. You don't know if anyone will watch it. And, like I was saying, in the early 2000s, when DVDs were, like, a big thing over here, and we started buying anime en masse, you know, I have a huge DVD collection, and it's almost all from, like, 2003, um, because that's when DVDs were, like, in vogue. And I Hmm. think there was a small period there where anime companies were more uh driven to appeal to western audiences and to make stuff that had a broader appeal that's when we got like post cowboy bebop which was like not really a big success in japan but it was really big in the west um you know the next show that guy made samurai shampoo i don't think it would have gotten made if not for the huge western market for cowboy bebop i think that studio Manglobe who made it went like hey we can get this guy we can make a show that has appeal all over the world and it it worked that show was really successful in the u.s you know uh then their next show ergo proxy was really successful in like italy it wasn't even a hit in japan but it was big in like italy and france um but that studio has just closed shop last year because after uh, a decade of trying to get into anime trends after making original works completely failed them uh they eventually just (laughs) ran out of steam and shut down and that's what's happened to a lot of the studios that used to be experimental um but when I paint it that way, it sounds very gloom and doom, but I think that a lot of studios are still trying to do new things. Um, just in the last two years, there was this big thing called the Animator Expo where Hideaki Anno, the aforementioned Evangelion director, like with all the money he made from these Evangelion uh, remake movies he's been doing, he put all that money into funding like every worthwhile independent artist in anime to do their own short films. So it's like this series of, I want to say 30, 39 um, short films. Uh, Just look for the animator expo. And it's like each one is a different director, different writer, a bunch of young animators, old animators, like everybody who, who he knew basically like, like it's like he ran through his whole fucking phone book and just called everybody up and said, Hey, you want to do a like cool experimental project? You know, uh, I have money to, to fund that now. Hmm. Okay. So, uh, going off of that, uh, where do you sort of see the future of anime right now? You know, earlier you were talking about how incestuous kind of the world of anime is, but it sort of sounds like in the eighties and nineties, maybe when there was less, anime around because you know the 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 genre the style the the culture the community wasn't around as long so you know of course you had films you had moments where uh, these films were greatly inspired by mad max or by star wars or what have you and nowadays it seems like a a lot with rock music you know there's just so much anime out there you know not only new anime but there's so much anime out there from the past that's worth looking at that's classic that's fantastic so uh it's come to a point where anime can kind of just continue on this feedback loop where it's just only influenced by itself yeah that um i was just listening to you uh one of your podcasts you talked about that i think it might have been the one with dope body 
um, you're talking about how rock music is like really just pulling from decades of, of past rock music. Um, anime, I don't think, has as far back of a view of itself. I think anime mm. is really like pulling from its own last th- three or four years, with rare exceptions. And um, mm. there's a there's a big like if hmm, how do I phrase this? All right. Like, on my channel, you'll find that I have, like, very extreme viewpoints on anime, right? Like, I, when I think a show is great, I will... Digibro, self-described anime extremist. Yeah. Well, like, um, you know, <laughs> one of the things I'm most famous for is, like, my big negative reviews. Like, I, I'm most mm. known for I did this huge series on the anime Sword Art Online, which I think is fucking garbage. And one on this show called The Asterisk War, which everyone agrees is fucking garbage. But um, So is that like your, your Kid Cudi speed and bullet to heaven right there? <laughs> is that essentially what that is? Yeah, uh, except if it, if I talked about it for five hours as opposed to 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, guess, I guess I only had to sit through 90 minutes of an album. Yeah. You, uh, <laughs> you, you probably had to watch multiple episodes, correct? Oh, so. yeah. Well, you know, and I did it on, I did it to myself. Like, ordinarily, I don't watch a lot of shows I don't like. Like, I'm kind of known for being the guy who drops most shows and, like, only really talks about shows I like, with rare exceptions. But the reason I go into so much depth about the shows I don't like is that, uh, like, with anime fans, because it's such a big medium, like, it kind of imagine if, uh, if everyone who was into music had never heard that music had genres. And they just, like, listened to random stuff and then ha- tried to have a conversation about it. Like, mm. it's kind of like someone who's only seen, like, just those Adult Swim action shows will call themselves a huge anime fan. And then someone sure. who might have never seen any of those and, like, only seen Studio Ghibli movies would also call themselves an anime fan. And they would... They would be. They would have a conversation like they're talking about the same thing when they're not. Sure, you know, it's like if you're just you only listen to one style of music, right? You just call yourself a huge music fan, right? Like if you were really into rock and another guy was really into rap, and you tried to have a conversation about it, like without the pretense that those are totally different. And I think that's a big problem that that anime fans face because it's such a like. It's such a weird medium where no one gets into it in, like, a linear way. There's no, like, list of classics the way that there is with film that, like, everyone agrees on. Like, if you go to any film website and you click, like, order by the best, then The Godfather's going to come up. Like, everyone knows The Godfather's the best movie. No one has that consensus with anime. If you go to different websites, if you ask different people, no one has a consensus on what the best thing is. You know, earlier I described Neon Genesis Evangelion as, like, the obvious best anime ever, but that show is hugely contentious, and there's tons of people who hate it, you know? Hmm. Tons of people who are outspoken in the, in the, uh, you know, in the critical circle. Like, if someone, if there was, like, a major reviewer who came out, like, shitting on Godfather, no one would take them seriously because they'd be well, like... I mean, you know, not that the Godfather's not good, but also, right. you know, we have to acknowledge that that sort of attitude does come with uh, uh, there being such a large industry around that movie right. being considered a classic movie. Yeah. A lot like in the music industry, you know, I mean... Uh, if if you go back and you look at a website like Rate Your Music, for example, where yeah. people can basically, you know, the the masses, uh, the the individuals, the the real music fans can go on there and rate exactly what they feel about, you know, albums from the past. Yeah. And you know, if you look at album ratings from the fifties, the sixties, and the seventies, they pretty much are in lockstep with whatever Rolling Stone said was great yeah. for that decade. You yeah, know, the Beatles um, are always going to be the Beatles and Bob Dylan are always going to be at the top of the list. Like, sure, exactly. I I've seen that you know, uh, but, the they're like top 500 albums of all time and it's like the top 5 is all Beatles albums and one but, Bob but Dylan the thing is like yeah. nowadays 
you know, uh, it's, it's just way more chaotic, you yeah. know, now there's like no real consensus or agreement on what's right. actually great and what's actually fantastic. But I, I think with anime, the, the thing is that like, in it, part of this is cause it's a younger medium than either music yeah. or film, but like, yeah, we don't have anything like that in anime. There is no Godfather. There is no Beatles. There's nothing. Well, there's no like you know? anime academy handing out right. best anime awards every year. Or yeah, anything, I mean, there's there's actually something like that in Japan, but it's mm. like okay. even that you you can tell those people don't watch most of the shows. They watch the movies, the the, the cool ones that are okay to talk about. You know, um, okay, I, the ones that aren't embarrassing. Yeah, or, or exactly. The, the ones that are hip or something. Yeah, but um. Oh shit! I kind of lost what train of thought I was on before that. Uh, yeah, like there's there's no consensus. People will people will shit on Ava, even though like sh- to me shitting on Ava is like shitting on the Godfather. Like if you can't at least appreciate the masterful craftsmanship that goes into it, then I don't think you know what you're talking about. You know, like you don't have to like it, but it, it to me it's like how can you call yourself like someone who who understands this medium if you can't appreciate what this show did because it's it's unbelievable but that's the thing it's it's not people don't recognize what's good about anime they they know what they like and there's no one who's like a mainstream critic. We don't have a Roger Ebert or anything, which, I mean, I'm hoping to become, you know. Uh, hey, you're, you're working on yeah, it. You're on your way. That's, I mean, because that, that's the kind of thing I, I, I idolized, you know, Roger Ebert. I always wanted to, there to be that for anime. You know, I want people, I want there to be people who appreciate it on a deeper level than trying to prove that it's cool. Yeah. Um. There's a great video that just came out today by my friend uh, Endless Jess, a fellow YouTuber who's like one of my best friends. He had a, a video called Fuck the Citizen Kane of Gaming. Um, and his message is basically that that video games have always been art and always will be art because it's art, um, you know, it, it, like inherently. And people keep trying to legitimize games by saying like, oh, this game's like the Citizen Kane moment of gaming. Oh, this game finally proved that games are art. And it's like games have always been art. And that's how I feel about anime is that so many people are trying to like prove that they have good taste or prove that liking anime doesn't make them stupid. And it's like anime is inherently art. Just like what you like and champion what you want to champion. And if you're going to be a guy who talks about it, be someone who's all in, you know, not just someone who watches the consensus masterpieces, like develop your own I cringe when I just think of that statement. Like what, like what would be the Citizen Kane of gaming? Yeah. And, And that's such a statement. That's such a crappy statement that you that you know people would be making nowadays sort of in an age where so many video games are movie-like and have right. cut scenes oh it, it so comes up so constantly it's it's that's oh, yeah, the yeah, actual yeah. phrase and it was like when, with when the, the last of is us like, when that came out it was like everyone called it the citizen cane of gaming it's like whatever but the thing is like while i do like modern video games and i don't mind video games with an elaborate story mm-hmm. you know to me that's video games becoming less like their own medium and more like the movie medium right you know um you know i'm not i'm not necessarily looking for a playable movie when i play right. a video game you know i mean i don't really come from an era where video games were playable movies i think uh i think know? if you're gonna talk about video games as a masterpiece dark <coughs> souls is the greatest masterpiece in video gaming history uh if you want to know why uh highly recommend a youtuber named mr b tongue uh that's mm. just the letter b and then the word tongue um he has a video about dark souls calling it the gesamt kunstwerk which is a a, a german word that means like basically that it's it's perfect at being its medium. Like everything mm. in the story works towards the story. The way that the game plays, the way it feels, the way the story is, everything feeds into each other and like enhances each other. There's nothing that takes away from it. Whereas like with those story driven games, you get pulled away from the game into a cutscene and it's like, what does this even have to do with the game? You know, what does mm. this have to do with the fact? 
like in The Last of Us, you, you take a break to hide behind a car for 45 minutes and like, what does this shooter game have to do with this realistic, uh, you know, game about surviving the zombie apocalypse? It's like there's these sure. weird parts that don't necessarily mesh perfectly together. And yeah, I think people are people are rating them like it's a like a like a high-rated TV show. I also think and this is getting on a tangent to video games, but I think there's a real lack of perspective in like saying that The Last of Us is the Citizen Kane of gaming when like a, a cutscene from The Last of Us is nothing compared to Citizen Kane, you know? Well yeah, also like the craftsmanship you know, like, is just not even close to that level. If you're talking about Citizen Kane, you're talking about a much older movie. Right. You're talking about a, a, a movie for its time that was really advanced and really technical, and you're talking about a very yeah. influential movie. You know, like as as good as the, the Last of Us is in some respects, right. it's not. It hasn't been around long enough to be influential to anything. No. You know. Um, uh, at least not on the level that Citizen Kane has been at this point. Right. You know, I mean, if you're going to argue for a Citizen Kane of gaming, I mean, I guess you'd probably have to say like Super Mario right. Brothers or something. <laughs> Which I mean is is fair. That game's a fucking masterpiece. It... Yeah, and just how many 2D platformers did it influence yeah. immediately after? I think if, I mean, if you, you can't know. recognize Super Mario Bros as high art, then you're you don't deserve to talk about art. Like it's oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and and it's not like. Uh, prior you know very very much prior to the last of us it's not like there weren't some incredibly artful uh rpgs that hadn't come out during oh, the yeah. uh, the 90s and the 2000s you know like your chrono trigger and all the final fantasy yeah. series and secret of mono one of my favorite games on super nintendo yeah all 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 art all high art all stories that touched you throughout your life you know like I feel like people are so worried about uh, finding stuff that's impressive. And this is this applies to anime, music, everything. I think people um, tend to gravitate towards stuff that's very flashy and instantaneously impressive. Um, I think that's a, a lot of why, uh, like, Prague is so big. Like, not Prague like King Crimson, but like Dream Theater, where it's like they have the incredibly technical playing and it's very flashy and people are like... Cause, I'm sure you've talked to insufferable dream theater fans before. They always have Dude, this. <laughs> like you you've made videos that have have sort of uh uh reminded me of had and have inspired me to like man, you know, I, one day I want to make a video where I'm just like what's wrong with modern progressive rock? Right. Although and, I will and... <laughs> say that one of the biggest places where me and you uh sort of have disagreement over taste. I like indie prog and you don't. I love the Deer Hunter and uh and I I, I I don't I get why you don't like it, but I think there's a lot of heart in the Deer Hunter. Um, if you looked at it like Dream Theater, which I think is fucking soulless, then uh, I could see why it would be boring. I see it as a, I don't see it as as just like Deer as just like Dream Theater. Right. I mean, I think it's a shade <laughs> above Dream Theater. Yeah. But um, you know, I I think it comes with a a host of other issues. Right. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, it's they're, very they're, teenager like, music. I'll give you that. Like, I don't know like, if I'd I be think, into the Deer I think Hunter the if I didn't get the only thing you could call, younger. like, indie prog that I really like are probably, like, you know, At the Drive-In or Mars Volta. Oh, I love you know? me some Mars Volta. Um, That's how I got into music, actually. Uh, well, in, you know, into, so, like, I mean, underground uh, music. You know, or, as far as, like, progressive rock that is fused with elements of indie, right. I definitely like them. Um uh, I was and, surprised and, by how much you liked Spirit Phone, to be honest, because I felt mm -hmm. like that was sort of indie prog. It gave me a very like Proto Men vibe. I don't know if you listen to Proto Men, but I like them too. I, I've heard Proto Men, yeah, and and I mean I don't see Proto Men as as 
progressive. I mean, I guess their music is conceptual. Yeah, you know, it's like definitely they, they definitely concept album type. Yeah, I guess it wouldn't really be considered prog, but they do experiment a lot. If you listen to Act Two, like there's a lot of stuff in there that's more in service of like the narrative of the album than just being musically pleasant. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I was just, it's just funny. I, cause you know, I watch a lot of your reviews and obviously I have a lot of my thoughts about your opinions. Uh, we, I, right, well, I, I, my, know, the music, let's get into the music. All right. Of the, the, conversation. the music I like tends to fall into your six out of 10 range. It's like a weird, <laughs> Dude, that that's like, that's, that's like for, so, that's true for so many people. Yeah. There, there are so many people that tweet at me that are like, when Anthony gives something a six out of 10, I know I got to check it yeah, out. Yeah. There's a lot of times where like, that's when I get the most, in- not to say that we never, agree on like big stuff but like a lot of my favorite albums like uh like endless fantasy by anamanaguchi or mm-hmm. uh obsidian by baths was a recent one where that was like you gave it a six and i listened to it and i was like yeah this is a six and then over time it just like i, I fell in love with it um or just uh, any number of things but like it's interesting though because i totally get where you're coming from every time like i i know you don't like uh portugal the man very much and uh, you know i love that one um Something colors record. Uh, censored to, colors. Yeah, that's censored. That's colors. the one that the I music that snobs record. tend to like. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, and you're totally right. I mean, it's. I, I wouldn't be surprised because I think a lot of people would just call me a music snob. Right. So if I like that record, then it must be the music snob no, I, record. I'll say this: their their latest album sucked. Uh, evil Evil Friends sucks. Um, but I love In the Mountain in the Cloud and uh, mm-hmm. the Satanic Satanist are both. Uh, some of my favorite albums, but I totally like got, I didn't even watch your in the mountain in the cloud review. I saw that you gave it a six and I completely constructed your review in my head and it made sense to me. (laughs) And then for a while, I kind of like was like, do I still love this album? Do I think this is like a little bit corny and repetitive? And then I was like, eh, whatever. I like it. Uh, (laughs) but like, yeah, um, no, it's, I think your taste, you tend towards these very like, uh, tight, like um heavy like emotion album like stuff like swans i feel like you have this uh this predilection like when you like metal you want it to be fucking metal you know you want it to be like dark and emotional and gruesome and like uh and stuff like that i tend to like music that's very dense with like uh just things happening i like music Mm. where there's like a lot of just like a lot of changing in the song a lot of uh layers of shit that's in there currently my favorite album is rat king so it goes um hmm. fucking just have been obsessed with that one that's an album i love too yeah i know you like that one and uh i've been thinking about doing like see because i'm i'm really big into music and a lot of it is is your fault like i i'm sorry <laughs> i i was you know i've always been a big music fan um and then I had never gotten into rap music really until a friend of mine showed me Bitch Don't Kill My Vibe. And I was like, this is really good. And then, like, I started listening to songs off of that album. And then I saw your review of it. And, like, someone had just showed me your channel. And, like, the stuff you said about Good Kid Mad City was, like, exactly what I was thinking about the album. And I was like, I'm going to use this guy to get me into rap music. Uh, then I got really into Death Grips. Uh, I love, like, Trap Lord and, uh, Lots of um, Earl Sweatshirt I probably like more than you do, at least Doris. Um, hmm. So, yeah, like, I just I got really into rap music through your videos and started making rap music and stuff and, like, just uh, expanding my horizons. So I watch, like, pretty much all your videos and usually listen to whatever it is, but I think I'm a lot more picky than you in general. Like, uh, I tend to have, like, 10 albums a year that I really care about, maybe 20. You know, I mean, there was probably a time when 
that was the case for me too. But now I just like have to listen to so much. Yeah. You know, and, and I feel like, yeah, I could never I mean, do your job because like the way I like music is to listen to it like a lot of times, you know, like <laughs> there was a, there was a period where I wanted to do, in fact, I still kind of do. Cause like for the whole time I've been watching you, I've been like, there's no sense in me getting into music reviews because he's doing it. And you listen to everything and you make videos about everything that's interesting. And uh, to me, like if I wanted to do a music analysis or a review, it would have to be an album that I've listened to like 50 plus times. Like I would only want to talk about an album once I like really feel like I can understand it and go in depth. And by that point, it's not relevant anymore. So like, well, I I think that just at the, at the, you know, your sort of listening habits, you know, that's just kind of how you digest music. You know what I mean? You're not trying to like, you know, uh, uh, ingest it and sort of, you know, come to an emotional consensus on it as fast as possible. You know, you don't need to, and that's fine. That's great. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, uh, I wouldn't say I would trade my place if I had the opportunity no, to I, I and go back got, in time. I think but, you've got but, the you know, best the, way to like have an audience for it, you know, which is like if you're yeah, yeah, yeah. if you're gonna bother sharing your opinion, you might as well have an audience for it, you know. And like I have I'm I'm big enough on YouTube now to where there's people who will watch things that I make just because I made them. So I have been doing more like music analysis on I have an alternate channel called Digibro After Dark where I usually just get drunk and, and rant about shit. And so I've started talking about music on there just because I'm at that point where there's people who, even though like most of my fans don't care about music, like they care about me. So they'll watch it just because I made it, Um, which is a nice position to have because I can talk about music and have anyone watch it. (laughs) Because there was a Mm. period where I was like, I'm going to be like Fantano and I'm going to get in front of a camera and rant about some of my favorite albums. And I made like three videos like that and nobody watched them. In fairness, they were not (laughs) good. But uh, yeah, yeah. I wasn't very good at unscripted back then. And I, I'm always curious, how scripted are your videos? Like, how much of it is exact sentences written down and how much of it is just, like, notes? It's pretty much all... Everything that I say is bullet-pointed or just, like, scribbled down in, like, a really rough sentence. Right, that's what I, um, I would say that, you know, a, a lot of... Uh, I'll write sentences out, you know, maybe 90 or 80% to what I want to say just because there might be an exact wording that I want to get right on camera. Right. And, um, you know, obviously I'm not going to remember every single thing I want to say about a single album off the top of my head. So I have to have notes, but also another reason notes are good because they allow me to sort of limit myself a little bit. Like yeah. if I go beyond a page, I, you know, I could go beyond uh, a page, six page uh, you know, Kendrick yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, with, with a lot of records, I, you know, well, actually in the case of Kendrick, I will allow myself a little more page right. because, because it's a big you know, deal I, I, and you know, everybody's it's a big deal. People it. will watch it and you know that he's conceptual with some of the stuff. Yeah. Um, but you know, with most records, you know, especially like, you know, uh, like you, you mentioned the, uh, the spirit phone record that just came yeah. out, you know, Neil is great. I love his music. Um, but not a lot of people know about Neil, you know what I mean? So my review might be an intro point for a lot of people. Right. So, so, you know, I would like the review to, the to whole be... History. Yeah. My favorite yeah. parts of your reviews are always the first few minutes, like learning about the history of the artists and stuff. Cause like the opinion stuff, I can just form my own opinion, go listen to the music. But like, I really like getting the context and, but, uh, my favorites of your videos are always the big long ones, like the Kendrick reviews or, uh, David Bowie's black star. That was a great one. Cause it's more like th- in those reviews, you're more talking about the context than, even your opinion really like with black star, Hmm. the context was so important to what was interesting about the album 
that it became a video about the context. And I, I like that a lot. I love reviews that talk about like a, that context and stuff, you know, um, a lot of the time I just try not to get as bogged down in context. You know, I just want to talk about the music ASAP because right. that's like the most interesting thing to me a lot of the time. Yeah, it's funny. Which is like, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm always interested because you'll talk about like a band I've never heard of and you'll be like, they've been in the punk scene for six years. They released this classic album that I've never heard of, uh, you know, and like go through all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah I'm yeah. learning. Uh, but I'm also like a ravenous consumer of analytical videos. Like all I do with my day is watch analysis videos on YouTube. So like those are the kind mm. of things I gravitate towards. It was funny because when you first uh, invited me onto this, I was curious as to if you had seen any of the musical videos I've done on my After Dark channel. Because I, in one of them, I talked about why I thought Death Grips was the best band of the decade, and I uh, introduced <laughs> myself as a digital bro Tano, the internet's laziest wino, worst teeth in the game. Because uh, I do have probably the worst teeth in the game, and then I also made a a, a forty five minute drunken life of Pablo review in which I. Uh, criticized yours for not being negative enough. <laughs> I hated the, you that know, album. There, there are some people that with that record review, there were just so many people on both sides. There were people like, man, he didn't slam it hard enough. Right. And then there were other people who were like, he doesn't realize it's the most genius record of the decade. Oh, man. Um, I, you know, uh, <laughs> Death Grips being the band of the decade, I think if they come through with Bottomless Pit and Bottomless Pit is great, uh, you know, I think that could seal the deal. Yeah. Even if they came out with a crappy album somewhere well, between here well, and my, 2020. My, my, my video is less about like the just the music and more about the the concept of them as a band because I think mm. that that's something that's kind of dying now. Where it used to be like the band had like a personality in itself. You know, like mm -hmm. a lot of the '80s bands were like these larger than life rock stars who were known for their their live shows or their personalities or their tours and stuff. And like. I think now with the internet age, most bands are just like the guys who made the music that's on the Bandcamp page, you know? Um, yeah, with, there's like no mysticism right. anymore. There's no storytelling. With Death Grips, no there is like an epic level of mysticism and storytelling, and it all feeds into the music. Like, you can't listen. Like, if you know about what Death Grips are like and you listen to the music, it adds up so perfectly uh, that it just enhances it all. You know, when you listen to No Love Deep Web, it, there's a fucking dick on the cover and you know that they dropped from their label and everything. And you're like, this is the most punk thing I've ever heard of in the last decade, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And a thing I wanted to talk to you about, mostly just because... Uh, your podcast is a better platform to talk about this than my own channel, and I wanted to hear your thoughts on it. Um, I think Death Grips kind of represents, like, us, like, YouTubers. Like, they represent what is going on artistically on the internet in, in like, video. Because uh, you've, you've been making these Resist Bro videos. That's what me and my friends call it, by the way. I don't know if anybody else <laughs> calls it Resist Bro. Uh, That's fine. <laughs> but, yeah, the the Resist Bro videos are, like, these... Loud, in your face, experimental, you turned on the camera, you fucking ranted, you went crazy, like videos, you know? Mm. And uh, I think that's something that we as YouTubers, we we all kind of like have a desire to do that. I think I think every YouTuber, for every one time we make like a, a video that we make just to get views, to get us popular, we then want to turn around and make the most batshit expression of our creativity possible. And like, uh, and that's why, you know, so many YouTubers have the alt channel, the, the after dark channel, the one with the crazy shit. And like, mm -hmm. I think that what makes those videos, uh, fun to do for us, what makes them like artistically satisfying is that we're putting these skills that we've developed through making our normal videos into these more esoteric and strange ones. And I feel like Death Grips is the epitome of that, where they are 
very talented musicians who know what they're doing. They know how to work video tools. They know how to make work audio tools, but they've chosen to make the most visceral, immediate things possible, especially with their music videos where, you know, you got the double helix video and he's just like rapping into a fucking uh, reverse camera on a car, you know? Yeah. And like, that was the kind of stuff that, that I would do. Like I, I would make these, like I make terrible music. Um, if anybody wants to listen to it, trial of the golden Lots of <laughs> albums, none of them any good. Uh, it's almost all improv, but like, I'd make these terrible improv songs and then I just film myself in my bathroom, like singing into a camera and like death grips feels like that, but like on a high level, like they really know what they're doing, but they're using it to make like, let's go outside and shoot MC Ride hanging from a windowsill and, uh, sure. and, and we'll put it online. And like, no one else would do that. Most bands are taking themselves seriously and want their work to be like, look like it took a lot of effort. And Death Grips mm. is like, no, we're, we're expressing exactly what's coming to mind. And it's very YouTube. It's very, our, you know, this generation of, of content where it's it, like, you know, vloggers who just, talk about their fucking life or whatever's going on uh, immediately, you know, without having to transform it into something presentable, but applying a, a deep level of skill to that. And um, I think if you watched a video by a recently very popular YouTuber called NerdWriter, he has a video called YouTube, The Medium is the Message, where he sort of talks about how, like, on YouTube, the whole idea of it being immediate, of it being something that anyone can do is a big part of the appeal. And I think that's what has made Death Grip so influential to, like, bedroom music producers and shit it's like you listen to these guys who are like recording shit on their camcorders taking samples from it and making songs out of it that sound amazing and guys like me are going i want to bash some bottles together and make a song out of that you know so uh yeah i think that's a big part of their appeal and influence well you know the 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 term that you know i think is sort of being forgotten here and and uh and and maybe it should be forgotten because it's very much a dated term. But you know, I, I see Death Grips as sort of the newest torchbearers of this world of DIY, which yeah. is you know very much kind of dead and gone. Um, I, I think maybe mostly because uh, indie musicians, if they want to get their music out there and they want to try to shoot for a career. Um, it's not a necessity anymore to right. have to print your own flyers and print your own zines and promote yourself. You know, you could pay some PR guy a couple thousand dollars to promote you for the summer season, yeah. you know, and get your music sent out to a bunch of blogs. It's all relatively affordable these days. So, you know, yeah. DIY isn't the necessity that it used to be. You don't need to book yourself at the local VFW or, you know, have the drummer in the band call around to venues all across America and then book your own tour. Right. You know, it's 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 it doesn't need to be done that way anymore. Yeah. And Death Grips doesn't do everything DIY, but uh, I, I think the, they were definitely sending a message when they left their label. I think it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think, that yeah, was, yes. I think that's they, a big part. They definitely of what, were. They, people do do PR for them. Right. I'm, I'm pretty sure they don't book their own tours. Yeah, you know, not. because they do play at some big places. Um, but you know, they wear way more hats than <laughs> I think a lot. For a of second, I thought you current... meant literally. <laughs> I was just no, like, no, they, no. I guess well, they I do mean, wear a lot of. Know, hats. <laughs> they wear way more hats than a lot of current day internet musicians do. Right. And you know, I talk to uh, a lot of internet musicians and tell them that this is what they have to be doing, but they don't listen. But Death Grips, you know, they're 
uh, directing their own music videos. They're producing right. their own songs. They're coming up with their own concept cover art. Uh, you know, they're they're doing these weird promotional things yeah. that they're sort of coming up with themselves, or at least I, they're sort I of delivering a, them in a way where people don't really know where they're coming from. I think the reason that's working so well for them at this point in time is that that. I think this is just from my perspective, but that all feels completely natural to me. Like maybe because of the way I grew up or that I've been on the internet for a very long time and that I've been, cause I'm completely DIY myself. You know, I, I run a YouTube network. That's just, uh, I never tried to copy what anyone else was doing. I just kind of made my own shit. That was what I wanted it to be. You know, people have always been telling me, you should be doing this, you should be doing that, that'll make you more popular, and I don't do any of that shit. It's just what I want it to be. I've never joined an MCN or anything. I've never tried to have any promotion. Um, you know, I do a podcast like this because I think you're a cool guy, not because I think it'll get me more views or anything. Um, but, like, you know, for me, like, having that do what exactly what I want, exactly when I want to, and fucking post it out there, and if people like it, they like it. Like, that seems so obvious to me and that's what death grips is doing and it's only when i look at other bands who are kind of struggling with that that i realize that it's not like that for everybody and that it was never like this until now you know that there was a time when you couldn't get big doing this but now you can and like you know my career would never have existed five years ago like it 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 was created in the last five years that people could do youtube videos your career like you get to not be beholden to any magazine you know, we, we're not writing for a website. We're not writing for magazines. We're writing for ourselves. We're writing in the exact style that we think is coolest. Um, you know, fuck what anyone wants us to do, but it still gets us popular. So I think for guys like us, especially like the message of death grips just makes sense, you know, and it's something that, uh, that clicks with us. Um, which is why I think it's, it's so big with like, with you, not just YouTubers, but YouTube viewers, where like so much of their audience is on YouTube and they post all their stuff on YouTube. And I think, yeah, and on 4chan too. Yeah. And I think that's just a place that makes sense for it. And it's funny because I feel like, um, like, I feel like the average person probably has never heard of Death Grips, but on YouTube, it seems like everyone's heard of Death Grips, you know? Like, you can't go to a video without someone doing a, an, an it goes, it goes, it goes, it goes parody somewhere in the video, and then all the comments turn into Death Grips quotes, you know? It's, uh, I feel like they are the band that represents us the most, and, uh, that's why I love them. Yeah, again, you know, it's, it's, it's just this neo DIY world, you know, it's just about sort of, uh, uh, doing as much as you can with your art by yourself and, you know, whether or not it's perfect, uh, that's going to be the art that most sort of embodies you, yeah. you know what I mean? Like just in concept and in theory, you know, just bringing up the idea of like, Hey, you know, let's shoot a whole music video through the rear camera yeah. of a car, <laughs> you know, sounds like, you know, to any professional music video director yeah. who is, They'd you know, like, using this profession, <laughs> yeah, like using this profession to pay their rent would probably think that's a dumb idea, right. you know, but it's just crazy enough to work in the case of death groups. Right. Because, you know, that's just, and that's just so them, they just embrace you know? it so hard and they don't apologize for it. They don't like, there's no moment where Death Grips is like, hey, we made this video, haha, ha, it's from the back thing of a car. It's like they completely just put it out there like, no, this is what we wanted. You know, like, this yeah, is Yeah, it's exactly not like, hey, guys, it sorry it's been a few months since my last <laughs> yeah. video. Like, uh, well, you know, I've been... <laughs> 
I'm sorry. It's just that that's what me and all of my YouTube friends do when we make, when we do fake mocking of YouTube videos. That's the exact quote. That, that's such a that's such a YouTube meme. That is like, such comment, a and subscribe. Um, yeah. Hey guys, it's been a, it's been a few weeks since my last video. Like uh, you know. <laughs> Oh man! I you know, even even if it took, even if it was a whole week before you know right. I put out a review or something, I would just go straight into the review. Yeah, no one cares because what you've been doing. they don't they don't even notice half the time. And also, that's like not really how people watch YouTube no, channels. You know, all. maybe like a select few, but you know, uh, it's it's not like everybody is watching every single video that you come out with in order like they're watching or reading your diary no. or a book that you're writing or something and they're you know? probably subbed to like a hundred fucking channels like me i'm subbed to like 150 channels or something so like when a, when a video comes up and the guy's like oh sorry i haven't made a video in a while i have not noticed i didn't realize unless i'm really excited about your channel in which case you're probably not the kind of person who would do that because you're probably a bit cooler than that if i'm getting that excited about it um do those apologies on Twitter, guys. Come on. Yeah, sorry it's been five hours since my last tweet. <laughs> that's that's actually yeah. a tweet that I'm probably gonna put out as soon as we're done having this conversation. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I, I like uh I like DIY as a term. I do think it's fallen out of fashion. I also really like the term bedroom producing, just because I am someone who does not leave my bedroom. So like for me that term has a real strong resonance with me. It's like, yeah, I'm I'm literally using the things in my surroundings to make what I'm making. And uh, you know, I think Death Grips probably gets out a lot more than me. Uh but I like that idea that like in in this in this modern age, people instead of going out to the studio to record their album, they're like looking around their room and going like, "There's a salt shaker. Let's make a hi hat out of that." You know, like hmm. you got. Um, I, I I appreciate that term, but I also kind of hate and avoid that term when I can as well. I, I think it, it like, can. It's often used to be insulting. I think. I mean, when people say like bedroom ambient music, they they mean it as an insult. But as someone who makes bedroom ambient music, I embrace it. I'm like, yeah, well, it's. It is what it is. I made it in my bedroom, you know. <laughs> like, it, you know, I think I think the term was more admirable back when, uh, maybe ten years or so ago, when the whole idea of recording entire albums in your bedroom was like was impressive. Kind of like a, was like yeah. yeah, it was like impressive, and it was a novel thing. Yeah. And there were actually some really cool bedroom music albums coming out. But now I think that recording technology has advanced even more in the past ten years and has become more affordable right. to the point where. I don't know why the fuck aren't you making underpass music? Yeah. You know, like you could be literally That's recording yeah. a new album anywhere. Um, you know, it's like why why the bedroom? Right. Um, I, I'm a big fan of uh, like what what influences me whenever I like decide I want to make music. Which again, none of my music's good. I don't I don't think I would ever submit it to you for review or anything. You'd probably blow it out of the water. But uh, like I get really influenced when I listen to like Song Exploder and it's like clipping or baths and they're talking about like you know making the beat for about that out of fucking closing cassette tapes and tearing paper. And I'm like, that's awesome. You know? Yeah. yeah Cause, yeah. And, and I mean, it's, it's not that it's just, Oh, we ripped a paper. Ha ha. It's like, they know what to do with that. They, they know how to fucking mix the sound of that paper ripping until it sounds badass, you know, or the, the beat they recently, there was a, have you heard of song exploder? Uh, no, it's a, a podcast like a very highly edited podcast, like 15 minute episodes, they get bands in and have them like explain how they built a song. Um, and there was a recent one with clipping where they explained how they made work work. And, uh, it was, they took like a, a pan and they hit it with a spoon 
and or a thermos rather. They hit it with a spoon and they sampled 140 different sounds that the spoon made hitting the pan, and then built a keyboard out of it, like a mm. and 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 just played that. So all the like all that is, yep. and then he like hand chopped all the sounds to make the the choppy noises, and like they built the entire song on the concept of having Cock Pistol Cree sing on it. Like, they built it around her voice from having discovered her from a DJ Mustard mixtape. And, like, that kind of shit is incredible to me. And I'm like, this is where music is going. And, like, you know, I think I think there's a lot of musicians out there who are struck. I'm, I'm friends with a lot of musicians who are trying to get off the ground. And the biggest problem all of them have is, like, wanting to do a certain type of music that's kind of on the way out or or too hard to do for young people now, you know? Um, a friend of mine named Jeff Burgess, who's like a, a masterful songwriter, but he has like, he can't, you know, he doesn't have a drummer, so his drums always sound like shit because it's always like, uh, you know, some freeware drum sample thing that he finds online or something he doesn't know how to use. It's like, yeah. he knows how to write songs, he knows how to play instruments, but because he doesn't know how to have like a clean studio recording, because he's writing like, you know, rock music, like pop rock music, like Foxy Shazam influenced st- type stuff. And like... Mm. He's going, you know, into like a home studio to record it and you just can't get the punch you need for that genre. And it's like, but what he could do now with this technology and what he's slowly learning to do is like set up that microphone in your room, make some weird sounds and just mix them until they sound like something totally new. And it'll be awesome. You know, Uh, don't necessarily try for the exact old sound that everyone's doing, you know having two guitars and a bass and a drum can sound great, but you can also do some stuff that no one's heard before and fucking blow all of our socks off. It'll be awesome. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and even some of the records that I listen to, like I just uh, am about to put out a review for this, uh, uh, new drones album there an Australian band. Um, you know, and of course on their records, you know, you have drums, bass, guitars, vocals. Um, but this record and many other records that feature those instruments that sound the freshest and the most, instru- the most interesting to me, um, do have additional electronics right. or some weird editing Dude, or studio trickery or just some kind of weird effects or something. I don't remember if you mentioned this in your review or if you knew this, but I just learned this the other day and it fucking blew my mind to shit. The Nelt Banana album Fetch all the drums and bass on that album are electronic. Did you know yeah. that? I didn't. I did yeah, I not fucking know that. I thought well, it was I mean, all live. I knew, I knew that. I knew the drums were sequenced. I saw an interview where they said that pretty much, you know, all the drums are sequenced. Right. You know, um, learning that. I don't like, know if they. I don't know if they recorded drums or if they, uh, like, if they recorded drum sounds right. or if they had just grabbed drum sounds yeah. from somewhere else. That's what uh, what um, Baths did for uh for his album, according to the Song Exploder. He like. He took a real drum kit and then muted it to the point that it no longer sounded like drums and then just took samples from it uh, <clears throat> just because he wanted well, yeah, I mean, I could, I don't yeah. know. It's it's probably just come with like listening to so many albums over the years, right. but, you know, I could tell pretty much immediately just with how the drums were grooving on the record right. that they were electronic I, I, because I can't the, believe, the loops like, seemed very static. I feel like usually I can tell, man, but like with that album, I had, I've been listening to it for two years and I had no idea. And then even after learning it, like I listened to it and I, I wasn't convinced. I was just like, wow, you can do a lot with, with drum sequences, you know, like, well, the thing about it that I think kind of throws through you and throws a lot of people off is just how fucking, loud and mind-blowing the album is you know what i mean it's not typically something that you associate with you know like drum loops you know what i mean it's such a loud visceral Uh, i gotta ask have you ever heard the band mirror throne 
Um, no, I don't think so. Oh man, Mirror Throne was. Uh, well, have you heard of Weeping Birth? No, is that related? Yeah, somehow? it's the same guy. Okay. Um, Mirror Throne is like a symphonic black metal band, uh, but it's just one guy who like did everything by himself. He also had a death metal group called uh, Weeping Birth, with, again just himself. But like, it's the most like you you gotta listen to it. Listen, look up the song "A Scream to Express the Hate of a Race," which is the best song that that he did as Mirror Throne. <laughs> it's nine minutes long, just like unbelievably like grim black metal that's uh like you know it's it's like symphonic but way over the top like symphonic black metal is already over the top this guy pushed it to the extreme everything is like gains way too high and uh but what he did was he had sequenced drums and like you know just like cheap drum loops or whatever but because he knew they would sound like shit he just layered <laughs> like a fuckload of layers on there so you'll hear like three blast beats going at the same time and it sounds insane and it was like mm -hmm. i guess if you have to use shitty drums then you might as well just make it crazy and it's some of the most like intense loud fucking music i used to always uh anytime i wanted to like scare people by introducing them to to like extreme metal i would put on weeping birth and just be like here's what here's what i listen to you know i actually mm -hmm. blew a guy's speakers one time doing that <laughs> well you know that that's i mean that that whole thing is very much in the black metal tradition oh, yeah. because a lot of those older Nordic black metal records from the nineties were just one guy, right. you know, or just two guys yeah. and they weren't a full band and they just kind of went around making their music or they went about making their music, right. you know, uh, uh, cutting as many corners as they could just to get an album together. Fucking, uh, you know, Varg and Vickers, the, the legend that he, for his vocals went and, and, and asked them to sell him the cheapest headset microphone that they had so that he mm. could make it sound as grim as possible. I've, I've heard that legend before. You know, there are like whole black metal records that are just like, you know, it's recorded in a basement with one microphone yeah. at a distance oh, from man. every piece uh, of instrumentation. So it sort of blends together. And, you know, that, yeah, das that tradition sort of carries that. Oh, I was just going to say that that tradition even carries on today onto some of the, the better recorded black yeah. metal records, you know, like that new Leviathan album. It's fantastic. Right. And, uh, and, and Leviathan is still, you know, kind of a, a one man operation. Yeah. I really liked dust tour. I think you only had that in like a, uh, like a quickie thing. It was back when you used to do like those, here's five albums that I think are pretty good, but I don't want to review them type thing. Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was around when I got into your videos. Um, mm. but yeah, uh, man, how do we end up talking about black metal? Uh, I apologize if you didn't intend for this podcast to go very long, but I'm very long-winded, and I kind of resolved that I was going to be the first guest whose answers were longer than your questions, because <laughs> you tend to that ask is... very long questions on this podcast. That's totally fine, because <laughs> this podcast is conversational, and you've been a great guest, right. and I just want to thank you for coming on and just going just in yeah. on anime and music, too. I mean, we talked about anime for an hour, and then we went on for music for like another yeah, 30 minutes. I've, I mean... It's like a, it's like I got you here, so I have to unload everything, you know, as someone who's been watching you for a long time and having all these thoughts. I also want to thank you for your scoring system in general, because uh, it's funny, I, I feel like your videos are hamstrung to an extent by having the scores there, because it's all people pay attention to. They fucking yeah. click on the video, they click the description, they look at the score, and then they leave a dislike, because it's a, it's a 6 and not a 10, even though a 6 is still a mm -hmm. fucking positive score. Just for just for uh, Anthony's audience, a six is a fucking positive score. <laughs> just making sure you all it's understand. It's slightly, it's slightly positive. 
five is neutral. Yeah. Anything below five is if hatred. If you actually listen to, to Fantano's six out of ten reviews, they're usually fairly positive. Usually it's like half of the songs were ones you really liked, and the other half you were just kind of like, whatever. <coughs> and you felt like, oh, I can't give a... I can't give an eight to an album where I didn't like half the songs, you know? Um, I think uh, I think there's a lot of music listeners out there who, if an album has two great songs on it, it's a 10 out of 10. I really think there's a lot of people who feel that way, you know? Because <laughs> like, when you when you get into those conversations with people where they'll say, like, oh, that album's a masterpiece, and you're like, oh, yeah? Uh, they'll be like, yeah, that song and that song, and you'll be like, what do you think of this one? And they're like, eh, that one's okay. You know, it's like, well, then why is it a fucking masterpiece, dude? It's it's not a 10 out of 10 if 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 there's songs that suck on it, you know? Um, yes, exactly. Thank you. But yeah, thank you. I don't. Need, I don't even need to say but, it now. You. Just but what I love about your your rating scale, in spite of what it does to your comment section, is that it's so loose because you always give the strong five to light six, and I fucking love that because to me scores uh, are very flexible. They should always be changing, right? Like if I listen to an album in 2013 and I think it's phenomenal, and then I come back to it in 2015 and I don't like it as much then my score is going to be lower. Uh, you know, they're not permanent. Scores are just opinions. Right. Opinions change over time. And that's, and, and that's basically the premise. And I think that those, by saying like strong five to light six, it has that wishy-washiness that's like, it's it's not one thing. It's not this set in stone score that's like, I gave it a six, you know. It's a strong five to a light six. I Maybe some days I'll think it's a five. Maybe some days I'll think it's a six, you know. Like, it, I, I love yeah, that. Yeah, you know, I, I sort of leave room because, you know, albums by... The end of the year might grow on me a little bit, yeah. you know, or they might wane on me a little bit. You know, it happens. I, I completely co-opted it. I use it in my own videos sometimes. The that that like I've anytime I actually mention a rating, I'll I'll say like strong one to light uh, strong two to light three or whatever. You know, like I, I just think it's I think well, if you're well, gonna the, have a ten the, scale, the one thing that's the I will say it. about my about my rating scale, I mean, I do like that it is kind of siding, but. Right. And I don't know why this, I guess this didn't really dawn on me at the time that I came up with this rating scale. Um, but the words light, decent, and strong have nothing to fucking do with each <laughs> no, other. No, it's very strange. Like, okay, so so think, so think something can grow from light to, I guess, kind of, you know, more medium or heavy. Yeah. Or something can be bad and then decent and then good. <laughs> and then something can be weak and something can be, you know, sort of uh, uh, like... I, I don't know, I don't know why know, I, I like it, even though it takes a moment. Like, because the first... <laughs> The, one of the first reviews I saw from you was the Good Kid, Bad City review. And the words at the end, it said nine, and then it said decent on top of it. And I went, how the fuck is a nine decent? And I was so confused. It's a decent nine. <laughs> it's not a light nine. No. It's, it, it's not a it strong all, nine. It's it made sense after, after I saw another video and I went, oh, okay, there's like three different versions of nine. All right, that makes sense. <laughs> Um, no, but I, I really like it. And I think it rolls off the tongue well, like to say light to decent or decent to strong. Like it, it sounds good. It doesn't make fucking sense. Yeah, yeah, but. yeah sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess, I guess there is enough commonality between the terms light and decent and decent and strong so that when you're sliding between those two, right. it sort of makes sense. But maybe saying something is a strong to a light something or a light to a strong something doesn't quite make right. sense. What, what you know, I, I think it's fair for you to do stuff like that on your channel, because uh, as a reviewer, especially the kind of reviewer you are, where you're kind of like a consumer advocacy guy, like to an extent. 
um, you know, your, your reviews are very immediate. They're very much about your opinion. And like the only way they mean anything to people is if they know who you are and what you like, you know, like if someone just came to your channel and all they saw was one prog review and they were a prog fan and you shat on it. And then they were like, well, fuck this guy. It's like, they don't understand that th there's like a narrative behind your opinions that you don't sure. necessarily like that genre. And so I think what makes it work, because you do a lot of these, like, gags that would not make any sense to a new viewer, the, the name-changing thing, like, almost, you've, you've gone almost an entire year without ever using your real name in a video. <laughs> it's, yeah, uh, like, it, and then after doing that, I was like, huh, right. maybe this isn't a good idea. Maybe yeah. I should start using my name, like, uh, occasionally. Right, <laughs> like, yeah, fucking Beardthony Grotano. I don't know if you've used but that what's one, funny but. is that, like, you know, people... It, people who it, it might seem a little abrasive or maybe a little outside to newer viewers, right. but to people who are in on the joke, they really like the yeah. joke. And well, that's the um, thing. Cause I think it's, I think it works because I think you need to get that into your channel for the videos to really have meaning, you know, like a one-off review by you doesn't mean much unless you have the context of your taste. Cause it is your opinion. And I think you, like me, don't really believe in, like, an objective standard of what's good. You know, there's that that is not a thing. You have your idea of what's good. All your reviews say, it's just my opinion, man, in the comments or uh, in the description. What's the no, what's the phrase? Uh, Y'all know this is just my opinion, right. right? And so, like, in order for your opinion to mean anything, you have to have the context for it. If I watch you give an 8 out of 10 to a rap album, I have a pretty good idea of what kind of album it's going to be because I know what you typically give 8 out of 10s to. And that's why I think, like, when you get those huge dislike bars on albums like Life of Pablo, it's mostly new viewers who don't know who you are, who don't know that you've never liked Kanye West, you know. Hey, 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 hey. His first three records are great, okay? Well, you weren't around to review them at the time. I For know, the record, I am I a huge fan of my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, which is part of why it bothers me that you gave Life of Pablo such a close score to it. <laughs> I feel like there should be a large distance between those scores. Um, but that's just that, me. That's why we have the light, decent, and strong, <laughs> yeah. man. Although, although I, don't, I don't remember. I think I said strong. I think I said strong six. I, I would give it a, uh, a strong a eight fantasy. to a light nine, personally. So. And and I might and I might have said strong six on Life of Pablo too. What would you give Life of Pablo as a, a rating? Like a three, a, a light to decent two, probably. Damn, I I fucking hate. I thought Ultralight Beams was the only good song. I thought everything else mm. fucking sucked. Uh, you know, there, there are people when I meet people in person and. Uh, <laughs> And they tell me, "Hey, man, I really liked Life of Pablo." Uh -huh. um, you know, I just say to them, "Oh, what was uh, what was your favorite part when he went? Uh, Can we fuck right now? <laughs> <laughs> Can we fuck right now? <laughs> what if we fuck right now?" You know, and then I just kind of go off. I just like explode in front of them, and I just start saying that. And, well, see, and that's the like, sad part, though. Yeah, like, because and I agree okay. with you on some of the parts that, like, where where it gets when it gets really insane, that can be entertaining, but it just isn't backed up by enough you know like i think the the production sounds so fucking flimsy on it uh there's there's a few songs that like would be bangers if they had any sub bass but there's none for some reason you know sure it just felt like the whole thing was was rushed and just he he fucking said okay it's done like before actually finishing it and you know i think kanye west is fascinating there's a a great article about him by film crit hulk uh do you know hulk mm. film crit hulk is a a, a I guess fairly famous, I, very influential for me, a uh, film critic who writes for Badass Digest, which is now called uh, Life Death Movies, I think. Um, 
and he writes in all caps uh, in the persona of the Hulk, and his mm. posts are all insanely long and unedited. Mm. But he's extremely interesting. He's like a guy who reads uh, screenplays for a living, and like like in Hollywood, so he like really knows his shit about movies. But he wrote this long thing called uh, "Bad Enough to Be True" about Kanye West, and he was just kind of examining his place in culture, basically comparing him to like the modern being the modern James Joyce. And I agree, and I think it's I think that Kanye West is a very interesting, unhinged, crazy artist. But I think it's also fair that if his work doesn't translate to you and you don't like it, to voice your opinion of it, you know, like I think the life of Pablo is probably great from like an artistic, like oh he's doing he's expressing himself, like yeah great cool. It's a shitty album though, and I don't like it, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean as as much as people might see my reviews and sort of. Uh... Uh, think of them in that regard, like sort sort of sort of liken them to, um, I don't know the the kinds of reviews that would take this tone as right. you're talking That's about my the music. Voice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, 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 you're reviewing an album. You have to use colorful language, uh, not sort of right. uh, out of out of necessity to impress people, right. but just because you're trying to find the words that accurately describe. Yeah, no, I, the I album love your. You're I to, love the words. You know, you're trying you to use. communicate music to people, so you know, I understand how you know people might see my reviews and think that I'm trying to do that too. You know, but it, it's I, it's not my intention. I've co-opted and when I come some across of your phrases like, that, like textured. You're a big fan of yeah. textured. What was the one? There was one uh, term that you kept using for like dark, grimy hip hop albums, and you said it like in five reviews in a row and it really cracked me up i don't remember what it was this was like a year ago but um gritty no it was mm. dark grimy gritty it was maybe it was gritty it was something to describe like a like trap music or something at the time i don't know mm. it was like a period where you just were really stuck on this word it was really funny to me um i know i i watch your videos maybe a little too intently i don't know if that's creepy or not <laughs> is it is it trap influence actually it might be trap influenced because that's a big one too uh <laughs> yeah pe- pe- people like to say stuff is uh yeah y- you know that what's funny about the whole trap influence thing is that for a little while the 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 term kind of made sense when trap was a relatively new right. thing and and now trap has sort of reached this level of ubiquity yeah. where it's I just mean, I what think, is, I think everything you know? is trap influenced now. It's just that it's everywhere. Like it, yeah, it was so big. Pretty much. Even so rock now, music is say, now trap influenced, you know? So now when I say trap influenced, people are like, what do you mean? Like oxygen? Right. Like, uh, like, like what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Like, you know, like what isn't trap influenced yeah. now? You <laughs> it's, know? it's harder so, to so, find. So when I talk about rattling hi-hats, yeah. it's funny because, you know, people don't remember like the Eminem or the 50 Cent era, right. you know, or like the, the most deaf. Until Eminem sort of puts out or... Marshall Mathers 2 and reminds you the, uh, how far we've come because <laughs> his beats yeah, exactly. sound like they're 15 years old. And you're exactly. like, what the hell is this? Um, so, you yeah. know, uh, so, so what, so I am kind of dating myself in a way when I use that term. And also, you know, it's, it's not too good of a term for me to use over and over and over right. because with the word trap comes a lot of baggage because yeah. there's so many sounds that are in that genre. Yeah, it's... And, uh, you know, you don't want to just like, uh, uh, sort of just continue to use this catch all term right. again and again. I definitely again. think that you... like labels are best when they're very fluid and, um, I think when people have like rigid ideas of what like genres and labels mean, you run into lots of problems because they the 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 argument becomes semantics. Like there's so many people who think that trap 
was a thing that only existed in like a certain period of the late 90s or something and that it's like just this one thing and anything past that is like some neo extension of it or whatever you know i guess it happens sure. with every genre at some point people go oh that's not uh rock uh that's um now it's like whatever dude the the point well, I, I of genres is to trace every single right like, i wouldn't say it happens with every single genre but within those genres where it does happen yeah. those are the genres that you see either grow dead or yeah. become slowly irrelevant because because people are putting it the in people a box. who yeah. Because people are putting it in a box and they don't continue to invite experimentation right. in it down the road. To me, the, the um, point of genres is just to like trace lineage and say where it comes from. Like saying sure. that like a hipster black metal band isn't black metal is like completely missing the point because like, of course, they are influenced by black metal. What else could it be? You know, like try, if you if, if someone it's not true black metal. Right. If someone came up to you and with was like, v, Sunbather is v. not black metal, it's like, okay, well, they clearly pulled influence from black metal. So it it must be a new genre of black metal, or else, like, what else are you going to call it? You can't pretend it came from the ether and is something totally different. Like, the song structures are completely black metal, you know? Uh, it just happens to sound mm. different. Um, I was sad. You know, what made me upset was that the term white metal was like co-opted by like Christian metal bands. Cause I thought bands mm. like Alcest should have been called white metal. I think it would have. Sure. And I also think Agalot should be called gray metal. I think they called themselves that once. And I really liked that as a way to describe the mantle. Um, <laughs> yeah, we should just have like every metal genre should just be somewhere on the color spectrum uh, <laughs> or somewhere on the black white spectrum. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay. We could go on so much longer, yeah. I'm sure. But we're going to cut it here. All right. Again, my guest has been Digibro. Yes. Uh, obviously, huge music enthusiast, but pr- predominantly an anime enthusiast. Yeah. And I, we've been talking about everything yeah. anime and music as well. I'm going to leave links to his uh, YouTube channel and uh, some of the anime resource sites that he mentioned down in the description box. Yes. Uh, are there any words you kind of want to leave uh, everybody with before we head out? Uh, yeah, just I'll say um, to paraphrase a video I have called your taste should always be evolving. Uh, mainly that phrase is the important one. I think that uh, with both me and Fantano's channels, we, sh- we we operate as a way to sort of help you um, develop taste and, and move through it. Like, I think... You should never try to like don't don't get stuck in in one taste. Don't be like I only listen to classic rock. It's like maybe you should try like finding a way into rap. It's not something that's going to come instantly. You're not going to listen to a rap album and suddenly love the genre. But that's why we're here to guide you through. So if you want to get into anime, you know, watch my videos and start watching shows and don't expect the first one you see to instantly grab you and make you love everything. Sample a bunch of shit. Watch the first episodes of a bunch of shit and drop it. Don't be a completionist because completionism gets you nowhere and you'll never finish anything. Uh, so yeah. Sure. And you know, I mean, once you're a completist, that sort of leads to, I don't know, obsession over a certain thing or a right. certain band or a certain sound, you know, uh, like you were saying, you know, your taste and your point of view should always be evolving yeah. with, Man, uh, with the times, a, you know, because a, I mean, even, even if you may be hearing sounds and music out there that don't sound like what you grew up right. with, you know, there's always something good and, and, and for, interesting for happening out there, even if it's different of how this can, can, can work. There was a guy I was talking to one time who was really into post-rock and I sent him the song, uh, wait by ISIS 
hmm. which is like their most post-rocky, chilled-out song from the Oceanic album. And I sent it to sure. this guy, and I was like, you should check this out. And he went and then listened to their first album, and he was like, this is nothing like what you sent me. Is this some kind of trap? And I was like, well, no, it's just that album sounds different. And he was like, oh, well, I always feel like I have to listen to a band all the way in order. And I'm like, well, you're never going to get into new music. Congratulations. You know, uh, <laughs> maybe just listen to the you one know, I sent you. Like, <laughs> also, post rock is just in in so many respects kind of a dead sound right now. Well, this was like you know? ten years ago that this happened, but like, yeah, yeah post rock sure. is definitely you know, but, but, dying but, or dead. God, but that's yeah, the thing with like micro genres. It really is dead, isn't it? There hasn't been like a great post rock album in in a while, has there? <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. It's been oh. a while, man. Poor R.I.P. Post rock. Yeah. Well, I, I guess there was a um the Silver Mount Zion's last album. Would you consider that post rock? Yeah, I, I think they're influenced. I mean, for sure, it's influenced by post rock. Right. But I saw it as one of their least post rocky yeah. albums so far. And I'd still you know, consider I mean, it, it was... the best post rock album of the last few years. Oh yeah, yeah, most definitely. R.I.P. You know, post I mean, rock. <laughs> Sorry. R.I.P. Post rock. You know, they, they're just like they're connected to the originators of the some of the originators of the genre. Right. So of course, some of those. Uh, linear song structures and the dynamics and the yeah. big instrumentation are going to continue to show up on these side project records. But you know that to me, there, there you know there weren't like any long-winded uh, uh, sort of intricate instrumental yeah. interludes on the album uh, or anything like that. I mean, it was just guitar it was one of their most direct for ten minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It was one of their most direct, you know, sort of rock albums to date, and it was still good. But yeah, still, like you said, you know, very post-rock. And I'll let you wrap this up now <laughs> before we keep going. I, I, you know, I, I, we're, we're wrapping it up. We're wrapping it up. So just thanks for being on. No problem. You're the best. Like I said, link everybody to your shit. This has been a good conversation. And uh, uh, we'll probably have you on again at some point. You know, we That'd should great. come up with a, a, you know, a particular topic or something to sort of attack or dive into yeah. uh, uh, on a future episode. I am always available and interested.